0: Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate Dimeo,
1: And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, we're talking about a classic of the Czech New Wave, Daisies.
0: As always, we're going to play a game, and we're going to start by talking a bit about what we've been watching lately and begin with our guest, Rachel Chavkin, who directed the musical Sasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812, which burned like a great comet brightly and too briefly on Broadway, and Hades Town for which she won the Tony. And I will point out that puts us a guest with a Grammy away from an EGOT on the show. So Kenny Babyface Edmonds, get in touch. Anyway, here's Rachel Chavkin.
2: Well, I, I mean, I've been watching it a lot because I am in the process of preparing to film my first feature. So I'm kind of giving myself a crash course again. I mean, I'm an expert in sort of like 80s and early 90s films, but there was just a huge amount of um, film education that I just haven't had. So I've been kind of going all over the map. Like we just watched the Florida project for the first time recently, which, which is great. Totally blew me away. And I just thought it was so beautiful. And we binged both Killing Eve and I had never seen Handmaid's Tale my husband had actually never seen 24-hour party people so i had seen that <laughs> but we rewatched that and i just saw goodbye lennon for the first time which i, I thought was so dear because um, i might be working on a project having to do with east berlin
0: oh fascinating
2: that's that's some of it and then we've been also binging just like tiny desk concerts because we're playing a lot of scrabble with our quarantine pod Nice. And, <laughs> sure. and those are fantastic to have on in the
0: background. I have just started watching uh, that show, The Great, on Hulu. So between Mrs. America and Normal People, all of my non-top chef watching is turns out to be Hulu watching. And um, I'm pretty into it. So this is that show that, you know, one of the writers of The Favourite, his take on the Catherine, the Great story, and it is very much in the style of the favorite. Oh, good. And I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. I like an amped up, um, slightly modernized, but still sumptuous, uh, you know, costume drama.
2: Did now? Do you know if Robbie Ryan, did, who was the cinematographer on the favorite, did he shoot the Great?
0: If he did not, someone was clearly watching and taking mm. notes. You know, it has the same thing that I really, it frankly, barely ever seen prior to the favorite, which is to make rooms that would have been dark, dark. And, you know, it has those lush darks and those, you know, great sort of candlelit scenes. They're lovely. And also has Nicholas Holt in a very favorite-like version of Nicholas Holt. Um, And he kind of kills it. Nice. We're all in on that Wait,
2: speaking of candlelit scenes, have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire?
0: Oh, have I? (laughs) That has been the single thing that I have been um, just trying to carve out time with my wife to see, because as I was I was just telling you off-air that my sister-in-law, town was the last thing that she had gone to see prior to all of this, and Portrait of Lady on Fire was one of the last things I saw, and it just remains this sort of, like, guiding light. Oh, remember, you could just go out and do that. <laughs>
2: you could just go out I've, me. like,
0: watched chunks just, like, in the background, even though I don't speak French, just because its presence mm. <laughs> I find sort of curative. But in terms of uh, things I watched this week, um, I had intended on seeing uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, the new movie from Eliza Hittman. Totally, Hitman, yes. And did not end up uh, having time for it, in part because I went down an Eliza Hitman rabbit hole. Because right now on Criterion Channel, there are um, all of her short films, um, and then Beach Rats, which is her previous feature. All of them have you know kind of story problems, and all of them are a little bit too on the nose and a little bit too predictable. She's such a talented director. She's such a talented maker of images and director of actors. And these performances that she's getting out of these, you know, teen and early and actors in their early 20s is really remarkable. And I am just a, a huge, like, there are very few types of things I enjoy more than a hangout movie with, like, a well-observed group of teens in some subculture in some location that I've never met before. Her short, Forever's Gonna Start Tonight, and Beach Rats, you know, both take place in in and around Brighton Beach, um, in and around sort of uh, Russian immigrant communities. And the vision of that world and, you know, her sort of keen observation of that world, I found so engrossing. And it was so easy to, you know, to forgive things that felt like kind of clunky storytelling or telegraph storytelling. Because the way that she kind of electrifies and kind of activates these kids' lives was so lovely. I'm very excited to watch the new one. But I totally recommend, despite their flaws, it, uh, Beach Rats in, in any of the early shorts.
2: Nice. She's been huge on my list and I have not um, gotten to go down that rabbit hole yet. So I will start with, I haven't, like, I haven't done the Criterion subscription yet, but a friend was just talking my ear off about it. And so... This is the push
1: that I needed.
0: How about you, Karina? What you
1: been up to? Bit of an update. Uh, Last week, I talked about how I had discovered that the pilot of the 1989 sitcom, Anything But Love, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Richard Lewis, was on YouTube, Um, and then I ordered a DVD version of the show, which is... Not the first season, it's not the whole show, it's like some episodes from the first season, some episodes from the second season, and some episodes from the third season, packaged together in an official set, but in a way that seems to be like, you guys know that the whole show wasn't very good. Like, there's really only 28 (laughs) episodes that are worth watching. Yeah, we got that, and we started watching it, and I'm I'm really into it. I, I'm not sure that my um, quarantine partner is as into it as I am, but I'm really <laughs> enjoying it. I also... So another, you know, you know, running thing that I've been talking about on the show in previous episodes, you know, we had watched Amadeus, and then I watched Unforgiven, and then I sort of started this program of trying to watch some of the best picture winners that I've never seen. So... We put those into our randomizer app and then at one point last week, one of them came up and it was Around the World in 80 Days. And my husband and I were both like, oh, God, (laughs) now we have to actually watch Around the World in 80 Days and it's three hours and 20 minutes long. And, you know,
0: it's that long. Yeah. And, you know,
1: it's when there's, you know, we're going to put it on and turn it off after after 10 minutes, but we have to give it a shot. And then we ended up kind of loving it. First of all, it starts with this prologue where Edward R. Murrow is sitting behind a desk and he basically tells you film history. Huh.
0: He wrote a book called From the Earth to the Moon. And in Paris, that authentic genius, George Melies turned it into a movie. 35 millimeter, just as you're looking at it now. It was. Of he course,
1: shows, introduces clips from A no Trip One to the Moon to and the he's, moon he's like, this is Malay what cinema what. used to be.
0: Here is the actual film. As Melee's camera recorded it. At the turn of the century,
1: this used to be technologically groundbreaking. And then, like, the screen actually expands as he's talking. Um, And so, you know, it's a commercial for the widescreen format that the movie is in, but it's also really (laughs) bizarre. And it's like the most intellectual way they could do that setup. And then the movie starts and it's just like it's the perfect thing to watch right now because it's a travelogue. It's just a really expensive Technicolor travelogue where they actually go to India and Spain and all of these other places. And then in a lot of those locales, there's, you know, just great star cameos. Like by the time they get to San Francisco, they go to a saloon and Frank Sinatra's the piano player. And Mar- huh. Marlena Dietrich is like a madam working in the saloon and – And, yeah, is it racist? Yeah, there's some racist stuff in it. Um, You know, Shirley MacLaine plays an Indian princess from India. Of
0: course. And then there's
1: some not-so-great stuff about Native Americans. Um, But then, you know, really the star of the movie, the point of view of the movie, is David Niven's character who is on this expedition, but he takes his valet with him. And his valet is played by the Mexican star, Contenfloss. Floss. Um, and he's really the point of view of the movie. And most of the movie is him sort of doing incredible physical comedy while David Niven looks on. You can't really excuse all of it. Um, but it was extremely surprising how enjoyable I found it. And, and you know, the, it, like in the way in which like Avatar or something becomes this huge blockbuster because it's doing something people haven't seen before. This is that. But what it's doing is still kind of incredible to this day.
0: In that it's just showing you the world.
1: Well, in that it's showing you the world on a massive scale, you know, with yeah. with hundreds of dressed extras and animals and really beautiful imagery and then diverting enough narrative. I mean, there's a bullfight scene where Cotton Floss like, is really fighting a bull, a bull. There's just some really incredible stuff in it. And then, you know, also there's some like pretty bad cowboys and Indian stuff. But what can you do? <laughs>
0: Karina is going to tell us a little bit about the history and set things up.
1: Here we go. Produced in 1966, Daisies was banned in its native Czechoslovakia for its depiction of the waste of food. This is ironic because the film ends with a sort of snarky on screen salute to a society whose biggest concern is, quote, trampled down lettuce. The state protested that Daisies defied the basic tenets of a communist state. Which seems about right, since it's basically a gleeful psychedelic comedy about consumption which ruthlessly mocks authority and patriarchy. Daisies is the second feature directed by Vera Tshilova, who entered film school when she was 28 and was 37 when she made this movie, in collaboration with screenwriter production designer Esther Krumbakova. She was the only prominent female director to emerge from what became known as the Czech New Wave, a burst of filmmaking that emerged out of the former Czechoslovakia in the mid-60s during a brief period of protests and attempt at liberal political reform in the communist country. The biggest international star to emerge from this movement was Milos Forman, who we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And to some extent, he exported the insouciance and Eastern Bloc irony of the Czech New Wave to the U.S. when he started making films there like Taking Off. The Czech New Wave films became a dominant force in international art houses, even when, like Daisy's, these movies were banned in their home country. Closely watched Trains, a Czech film produced at the same time as Daisy's, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 1966. Chytilova said she had offers to go make movies in America, but she chose to stay in her home country, which looked in 1968 like it might really be heading out of totalitarianism. But the hope of liberation was crushed when the Soviets responded to an uprising known as the Prague Spring with a crackdown. The Prague Spring preceded the European uprising that is somewhat better known to most cinephiles, the French uprisings of May 68, which revolved around the Paris Cinematheque and has been depicted in movies like Bernardo Bertolucci's The Dreamers. Daisies feels like it should be celebrated as Instagram fashion inspo alongside French new wave hits by Godard and Truffaut. But Daisy's is either less sophisticated or more advanced, depending on your point of view. In its disregard for conventional storytelling, as well as its very 60s kind of surrealism, it feels like it's less in dialogue with the French films than with the Beatles movies and the work of contemporary artists like Yoko Ono and Yayoi Kusama. As psychedelic movies go, it predates mainstream American movies like The Trip and Head. But as we'll see in our game later in the show— by the time Daisies was finished in 1966, the 60s hadn't really started yet in American movies.
0: Rachel, you know, when I wrote to you and said, hey, uh, you know, what's on your list of movies that you've never gotten around to seeing? Um, how did Daisies end up on your list and end up on your radar? You know, What did you go in uh, expecting from Daisies?
2: Uh, I, I, I was not surprised by uh, the humor of it, just having um, loved Czech arts from in particular, like knowing the plays and check performance from college. But, uh, I think I just was looking up great female directors, honestly, and, and made this like extensive list and, um, Daisy's and Vera Chitlova were, were both on that list. So that was how I got there originally.
0: Yeah, this is a movie that I was only vaguely aware of, and 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 I realized that like a lot of it comes from like a couple of stills in the kind of pre Instagram era. There's so everything's so visually arresting in it. Um, you know, I feel like I've seen you know one of the Maries with the uh you know two taxidermied uh, butterflies uh, covering her chest. It's somewhere that's lodged into my memory. But this was really like a, a revelation for me. You know, like I read I read a bit about before I loved it started. It. You know, and I was expecting the surrealism and I was expecting, you know, kind of like a mod psychedelic explosion or something like that as, you know, kind of is befitting the times. Um, but that said, what I didn't really expect was this like, like proto punk rock text.
2: I totally, the first thing I wrote was it's so fucking punk rock. Uh, and like the end, which I thought it was so interesting that you had the translation of lettuce uh, keep off the lettuce because uh, I saw that elsewhere when I was like doing research of the film afterwards. But on mine, the 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 end translated I guess spoiler as this film is dedicated to bureaucrats whose sole of outrage is people ignoring keep off the grass signs,
0: and it's just like fuck yeah. But that's totally different than the one that I watched. Uh, the Chiron says at the very end, this film is dedicated to those whose sole source of indignation is a trampled upon trifle. And somewhere in there, you know, obviously lies the truth, whether it's lettuce or keep off the grass, but a trampled on trifle is like, it's a totally different sort of uh, type of crime, <laughs> you know? It's not like, you know, a trifle is is literally that. It is, you know, it's it's about, you know, sort of excess and, and a row of lettuce, for instance, you know, that's something you can sustain the state with.
2: But it's also just like, why would you get upset about, I mean, that's why I love the inclusion of the bureaucrats in mine. And maybe I'm just, <laughs> you know, attached to it because it's the one that was on my version. But just like this idea that all all you've got to be angry about is whether these minute rules are followed. And it just, uh, you know, I, I got pissed when I was looking at some of the descriptions and like the iTunes description was since the world is spoiled, they will be spoiled too. And uh, about the Marie's. And I just was like, Oh, yeah. it's so much angrier than that. Um, and to, and I just had, didn't see like the rage <laughs> sort of captured anywhere along with, yeah, this like beautiful humor.
0: Did you watch it on a criterion, uh, Karina? It's interesting because in the, at least in the criterion, uh, translation, The phrases that they use, um, and they kind of say it over and over again, which in some ways is just helpful in terms of when you're watching it, because despite the sort of anarchic nature of the filmmaking and the storytelling and and how just kind of bizarre uh, the kind of symbology is and all of that stuff, the thing that really grounds it is the thesis statement is really out there. It's like, you know, in the way it's written in the translation that I watch was essentially the world has gone bad. Should we go bad, too? You know, this question of nihilism, if in the Czech Republic in 1966, if the world is, you know, war and deprivation, uh, should we take on uh, the spirit of the times? Or is there something else, whether it's is there something else possible or is there another way to live? I found it totally exciting to to, you know, have them, you know, tackle this question in the different vignettes.
1: Yeah, I was I was really moved by it. You know, I wish I had seen it when I was younger. Um, It feels like a tragedy that it wasn't shown to me in film school or art school. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more it feels like a problem that we saw so few um, films directed by women in art school Mm -hmm. even. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, You know, I mean, this was, you know, 99. But still, um, this would have really, I think, hit me much harder than when I was – You know, I would have been able to appreciate it as pure cinema in a way where, at least right now, I think I'm craving more narrative than this gives you. But, you know, it's stunning to look at. And I think I can appreciate it theoretically, but not necessarily
2: emotionally. It's interesting. I was I've been watching a lot of concert footage um, actually for this um, East Berlin project Uh, and particularly a bunch of concert films like uh, the uh, film instrument about Fugazi Mm -hmm. and just like the switching of the filters, the relentless switching of the filters, that kind of um, visual anarchy. Of this, yeah, I found it so moving. And to your point, Karina, about sort of seeing it, I mean, I feel happy to have just seen it now. Um, but I find, I guess, like I'm really, as I said, I'm moved by the indignation mm-hmm. of it. Um, and it's funny, Nate, that line that you were talking about, I just was looking it up in my version. And in this version, it's translated as everything is fucked yeah. up in this <laughs> world. Uh, what do you mean everything you know everything and yeah she goes on and it's like well I guess we you know what um when everything is fucked up
1: we'll be fuck ups that's definitely more punk rock than what we got (laughs) (laughs) yeah it really is
0: interesting like like how different um I mean this obviously happens all the time with translation but to to be spoiled especially in the context of like destroying rich people's shit, it has a totally different meaning (laughs) than to be bad or to be uh, fucked up.
1: It's also, I mean, the like, let's be bad little girls thing, I think is, you know, I think it leads you to, as a viewer, it kind of lets you off the hook if you're like, oh, you know, these cute, sexy little girls. Totally. So, yeah, that's troubling. (laughs) Yeah, it makes it so much more about infantilizing
2: versus protest. And like, for me, I thought a lot about fashion as protest during this and just like the mm-hmm. ways in which women protest throughout history. And I mean, this is like a super um, kind of side glance, but for another project that my company, the team is making, um, we've been reading this book out of the house of bondage that is about the relationships between women, uh, White women and black women, both under the system of slavery, mm-hmm. and then during the Reconstruction era, mm-hmm. and the 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 thing that I was thinking about is just, and that the book this in, which is quite incredible talks about is just the ways that women had access to protest, uh, and how rarely. Um, the the idea of like the house and the domestic space gets looked at seriously by male scholars because it, it was a woman's space but actually it was this incredibly and often incredibly awful um, uh, you know uh, arena for these uh in intense aggressions and like I think about I mean just like the hat that she emerges with in that one scene when they're when they're outside or the butterfly pasties um yeah I mean I thought a lot (laughs) about like ab fab (laughs) but also totally this um that they were using the tools that society gave them And that was how in the opening scene, she actually describes uh, in in my translation, it's like, well, I look like a baby doll, right? Don't I look like a baby doll when she puts on the garland for the first time? And she's like, okay, well, someone tells me I'm a baby doll. I'll behave like a baby doll.
0: I found, you know, the sort of punk rock energy. So so specifically kind of like refreshing and relevant in that. So often, if you tell me a movie's going to be kind of punk rock, um, there's this kind of like anarchic male energy. This this isn't the no future Sex Pistols like this just like felt, um, you know, so much like prefiguring, you know, Riot Girl And like there's so much there's so much of Kathleen and Hannah and these two women. There's so much, you know, of, of the women with Bratmobile in here, you know, there's so much sort of like of like the chainsaw zine from Donna Dresch and all these things that like, frankly, are really formative and like help me sort of understand the world. I feel what Karina was saying in terms of like you know I kind of wish I'd seen this earlier because I do think that sort of aspects of it would have hit me harder. That said, I'm glad to play you know if we could even play a small part in sort of raising it up because it really does feel like this thing that have has you know fallen in the cracks that that it's there's like a Rosetta Stone to it. There's a you can see other culture through this through this film in a way that just felt really helpful and really exciting. Like I really felt like oh I don't know how I missed this because clearly. Other people whose work I've loved, you know, have either seen it themselves um, or were influenced by someone that was influenced by this. And
2: oh my god, totally!
0: For all I know, these two might be the, you know, the Meryl Streep and Glenn Close of Czech cinema, hmm. and I've just happened to miss them, and they've been in dozens and dozens of beloved movies that I should have seen.
1: No, neither of them were actresses. Oh, really? I think one was a telephone operator, and the other was something else. But they were just, you know, members of the communist state. <laughs>
0: There's something so exciting sometimes when you watch particularly a foreign movie and just these like people just kind of like really pop on your screen um, and your connection to them becomes, you know, this sort of like indelible memory. And these two, you know, are really magnetic. Um, I was totally, you know, at the very least happy to hang out with them.
2: Yeah, my husband and I, I said to him at one point, I was like, I wonder how many takes they did of each the scene um, and he was like well I, they got the characters down so if, I wonder if they could just go and go and I really did I, I thought about a, a lot of actors I know who sort of uh, we talk about character a lot as like a switch inside the uh, on the helmet inside your skull and it's like once you flip that switch they can in my company we write our plays this way like some of my actors can just like improv for hours and there is a clowning aspect to it um, because it's, it, it you know, there is a kind of tapping into a child's sensibility of play. And I, during like the big final banquet scenes, I totally was like, I wonder if they did this more than once or if it was just, like, go.
0: Your actors aren't members of the Czech communist state <laughs> or full-time <laughs> telephone operators or whatever it might be. No, totally. <laughs> This is the part of the show where we ask, was this a good movie to watch right now? What do you think, Karina?
1: So for me, as I said, I think that right now I'm craving kind of more traditional narrative because I'm craving more of a connection to human beings. And um, it was hard for me to kind of connect to these, you know, characters, um, and I found that the... Political content of it is interesting, but it it wasn't really right for where I'm at right now. So for me, this wasn't the best quarantine movie. But again, I wish I had seen it when I was 19. How about you, Rachel?
2: Uh, I feel like uh, I want to be 19 now. And (laughs) this was a really good match for me. Um, But I loved it. I loved its anger. I loved remembering that people can think this way. Um, that a director and her team can uh, make just like picture after picture after picture that feels like it's been ripped off by every single photo shoot Mm -hmm. that every fashion magazine has done over the last 30 years. I mean, it's just relentlessly inventive. Um, um, I loved that that was really like beside the point of um it's like shaggy joyful anger um and kind of fuck you so i i liked having that energy in my life for an evening
0: i'm glad you sent this our way because like the truth is i think i i too like karina i'm sort of in this mode where you know i am kind of like craving expertly crafted comfort like You know, every once in a while, I'm just sort of like, you know, what Tony Scott movie haven't I watched? Like, you know, can I can I see can I see like Denzel Washington like shouting on the bridge of a boat for a couple hours and sort of sweep me away? (laughs) But it was so I found it so um, kind of delightful to be like thrown into this movie. And like there's definitely this few minutes in the beginning where I was like, oh, man, this is going to be relentless. Like this is going to be, you know, of a slog. But I really didn't find it that way. Like I found it endlessly inventive. Um, I found it really sort of transporting um, to a different time and place, which I keep consistently keep finding valuable. And then, you know, you know, if it's big message, you know, about the idea that like people are worried about trampling on a trifle instead of worrying about the things that matter. I mean, I feel that way all the time these days. <laughs> you know, I keep feeling like we have these big fights about propriety and about a decorum. Uh, when there were such bigger fights to be had. And in that way, I like it even connected with the moment. So sure. Daisies. If it sounds like it's for you, then it's probably for you. Shall we play a game?
1: Sure. Are you guys ready? I'm nervous, but I'm excited. All right. So this is a version of a game we've played before called Top Five, where you try to guess the top five grossing movies. In Hollywood of a specific year. Um, So we're going to do that for 1966, which was the year of Daisies. Um, So let's set the scene. In addition to Daisies, 1966 was the year of Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls, Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, which would actually become one of the highest grossing films of 1967 in America, alongside Bonnie and Clyde, Valley of the Dolls and The Graduate, but 1966 was truly the last gasp of the studio system luring audiences to bloated epics and getting away with it because they were the only game in town that could reach every city in every state across the country. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you clues, and you guys are going to try to guess the top five grossing films of 1966, starting from the bottom and working up to the biggest moneymaker of the year. Whoa. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Nate, I'm not going okay. we'll, to. I don't yeah. know how
0: well I know 1966,
1: but OK. All right. Number five. This adaptation of a play about Sir Thomas More became the second film directed by Fred oh, okay. Zinnemann to win the Oscar for Best Picture. The first was another film which we've discussed on this podcast.
0: All right. It's, it's, like a of it's a man of. It's a man for all seasons. Yeah, man for all seasons. Excellent. Correct. Are there any more that are based on plays? Because
1: um, so that will help us. Actually, <laughs> yes, there is one more that's based on a play. Um, oh, good. All right, number four. This war epic, directed by a guy who had won two best picture Oscars in the previous five years, features Marriott Andrianne. Otherwise known as Emmanuel arson the French Thai novelist who is the inspiration behind the erotic adventures of Emmanuel acting in the role of a Chinese former prostitute.
0: There's a lot of information there, but honestly, I feel like none of it is leading me to the answer to this question.
2: Acting in the role of a Chinese prostitute. What war? So this, is a
0: war this is a war epic. I honestly don't have an answer. I have this one. zero
2: idea.
1: I had never heard of this movie, but it, like reading about it made me want to know all about this woman who is the woman behind Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And it really made me want to, um, like, you know, read a great biography of her. But it doesn't seem like there is one, not even in French. Um, really? So somebody please get on that. But anyway, the movie is called The Sand Pebbles. Um, it was a massive hit. I think picture that poster. Uh, directed by Robert Wise.
0: I, I've i heard of that movie. It was a, it's a yeah. massive hit, and it has the uh, woman f- that Emmanuel is based on now. That's way more compelling information than I would have guessed about The Sand Pebble.
1: Okay. Number three. 35-year-old Elizabeth Taylor won her second Best Actress Oscar for this black-and-white film in which she acted opposite her then-husband, Richard Burden. It's Anthony oh. and Cleopatra?
0: No. This is this is one of my favorite movies of all time.
1: Oh, this
2: is Who's this... Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Exactly. Yeah. Correct. That is feels very later sixties, actually. That Mm -hmm. raucous.
0: Wait, so Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf is the third highest grossing movie of that year? Yep, that's amazing.
1: And Elizabeth Taylor, like Elizabeth Taylor, had kind of dropped out of like the you know the charts of box office because she was kind of just like on yachts with Richard Taylor. But this really brought her back, and it made her one of considered one of the most bankable stars of the year. All right, number two. This film's director cast himself as Noah in this biblical epic. <laughs> the Ten Commandments?
0: Is it The Ten Commandments? I feel like that's earlier.
2: Oh, shoot. It's not Ben-Hur.
0: It's not Ben-Hur. You have just run out of my biblical epics, frankly. <laughs> I don't
2: know. Is it called The Flood?
0: Yes. Is it called Noah
1: it's not we'd have to wait a little bit longer for Noah it is called the Bible colon in the beginning
0: <laughs> was it supposed to kick off a franchise
1: I think so yeah <laughs> I, th- I mean I haven't seen it I know it's three hours long and that it's only part of the Bible um yeah it was directed by John Huston and starred John Huston as Noah. as Noah. It's amazing yeah. that he didn't lead to a franchise. Eh. You would
0: think it's the number two movie of the year.
1: One more. Right. This is the highest grossing movie of 1966. Formerly blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo helped to adapt a doorstop-sized airport paperback into this three-hour epic starring Julie Andrews.
0: Oh, I I weirdly know what this one is. This is one of those James Mitchell novels. Do it. Um, and it is Hawaii. Correct. I've never seen Hawaii. Me neither. I just know that it exists. Never that seen a, never it. Never
2: read a James Mitchell novel.
0: No, neither have I. I. What is who does Julie Andrews play in Hawaii? Like,
1: <laughs> I think some like colonel's wife. Oh man. Who's like upset to be in Hawaii? I think. So the <laughs>
0: epic story of the founding of what becomes the state of Hawaii. <laughs> stars Mary Poppins.
1: Well, you know, I actually have that book on my shelf because my dad was a big Michener head. And when he died, I just like got all of his books. Uh And so it's one of those things that I've like kind of always wanted to just like go on a vacation to Hawaii and only bring the novel Hawaii. Sure.
0: But you can't actually take it off the shelf because at this point it's a load bearing wall.
1: (laughs) Well, that's that's what I use the power broker for (laughs) another book that I inherited from my dad and have not read yet.
2: We've been playing the game. Uh, we watch New York One in the mornings, and uh, and of course, all the reporters are now home, and it's a good game to try to find uh, their copy of the Power
0: Broker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Where's Moses? Uh,
0: he's being played by John Houston. We only have one more bit of business, and Rachel, would you uh, take a second and tell us about a beloved movie theater film series? something like that that you are particularly missing right now?
2: Yeah, I I mean my husband and I go to BAM all the time to see movies and I really miss it. I love going to the opera house and seeing stuff there. We were delighted enough and lucky enough to see the premiere of Black Panther um, when they played it in the BAM Harvey Theater um, and it was packed and it was fucking amazing. So yeah, I miss BAM.
1: Let's find out what we're going to watch next week with Mark Olson, film reporter at the LA Times. Hi, Nate and Karina. This is Mark Olson. Uh, we're going to be talking next week about The Verdict, starring Paul Newman, written by David Mamet,
0: directed by Sidney Lumet. So track down The Verdict and watch it, and we will meet back here next week.
1: As always, you can drop us a line at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. You can follow Nate on Twitter at The Memory Palace and you should subscribe to his podcast, The Memory Palace, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And you can follow Karina at Karina Longworth and go subscribe to You Must Remember This and get in on her new season about the unsung movie powerhouse, Polly Platt. We'll talk to folks again.